Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the people behind the positions that are shaping our common life, and how we can build more understanding and empathy across our very many differences. Every episode, I try and do a deep dive with someone who has some kind of public voice or public position. I'm trying to understand the principles that are driving them to get a handle on their worldview, really. My theory is that in the age of tighter and tighter filter bubbles, listening to a range of voices from wildly different tribes and perspectives is important for us to grow as citizens, and frankly, just to grow up as people. Before that sounds too earnest, I should also say, as well as it being a good and important thing to do, it seems to make the world just a lot more interesting. In this episode, I spoke to Anaya Folari Iman. Anaya has been a host on GB News, which is a television channel in the UK, a candidate for the Brexit party. She's written for Spiked Online. And she is now the founder of the Equiano Project, which describes itself as a debate, discussion and ideas forum that focuses on race, culture and politics. We spoke about her childhood as the daughter of a Nigerian immigrant single mum, who was unusually an atheist, about coming to different conclusions to her student friends at university about race and why she thinks people really need a sense of agency. I hope you enjoy listening. Inaya, it is a really big question to start someone off with. It's not a very good warm-up question. What is sacred to you? So maybe I'll give you just a minute to get your brain into it by asking, how did you feel about the word? Did it feel comfortable and attractive or unusual, spiky? What was your reaction to it? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm quite warm to that word. You know, I, I actually wish that it was talked about more in public life, but... I think oftentimes, anytime someone talks about the notion of the sacred or, or, or what is sacred, I think oftentimes people feel queasy, uh, that they, they might think it's a bit hippie, a bit new age, um, or, or from a, a, a time that is no longer uh, rational and uh, reasoned. And so in public life, I think it, it's not one that I hear um, often, but I, I'm I, I wish it wasn't that way. So when when I um, got that question, when when the word sacred was presented to me, um, I was really excited. I was surprised and excited. Good. And having had a bit of time to sit with it, this very big question about what's sacred to you, <laughs> what bubbled up? Yeah, so I, it, it took me a while to think about it um, for the reasons that I just alluded to. Um, and... What I thought was sacred to me was the notion of home. And I think that's different to just family. Like, home to me, a, a place of security, stability, a, a foundation, a place that you put roots down, a place that you go back to and, and feel a sense of recognition and familiarity um, with the objects and the, and the, the way that it looks and, and, and the way that it smells. And that, to me, um, has increasingly become a very, very important um, idea for me. So I, I, um, I moved around a lot growing up. Um, so I, I was born in London and uh, born in Streatham in southwest London. 
and then moved to um, southeast London and then moved to Kent and then went to boarding school in Hertfordshire um, and then and then went to university in, in Leeds. And I, so I ended up going to six different schools, um, three primary schools and three secondary schools. And um, and I, I came from a, a, a broken home. And so home to me has increasingly meant um, all of the things that were were fractured and, and unattainable um, for me for, for much of my my youth. And um and it was it's only something that I've realized um because because I was so used to that, um not not having a, a, a secure, rooted sense of home and place. I forged a a sense of self that was that was all about independence and uh traveling and and you know creating your own identity and reinventing the will and creating your own values. Um, and so I was quite resistant and suspicious of, of people that had the same friends their whole life and never left their, their, their home and community. Um, but I think as I've passed my, as I'm in my mid-20s, somewhat past, past my mid-20s, um, I've realised actually the, the, the relationships, the meaning, the rootedness, um, the sense of satisfaction and stability and security that that um, I've not had and, and wanted and, and now I'm very driven to attain. So home to me is, is something that I hold very dearly and, and see as, as, as sacred and intrinsic to lots of other aspects of, of my life and my, my sense of fulfilment and meaning. Yeah, that's beautiful. Where is your home now? Where are you managing to put those roots down? So it, it, it's still somewhat not decided. Um, I would just say London is probably my home now. Um, I was born there, as I mentioned. Um, I've lived there since leaving university. And I think I, I think it's a place that I'm going to live for a long time. So there's something, what I like about London, and it... it I've got, it's got its criticisms and it's got its cliches, but there is something still very true about um, its diversity, um, its multiculturalism. It can be, it's both transient, but also consistent in the fact that there are people that have lived here their whole life, but people that have found home here. So for people that um, never really had that um sense of place that was consistent I think London is a great place to find that because there's many other people in a similar boat to you that still call it home despite not having been here for a long time or or being born in different parts of the world and um and it has all of those things whether that's the city to the suburbs um rich and poor and and different all different kind of social classes and, and, and cultural values so I think that allows me to claim London as my home Amen, yes. I'm also a London lover. I'd love to hear more about the big ideas in your childhood. And it's so helpful that that sense of transient has been formative kind of in in different ways at different times in your life. But maybe we could just start with your mum. You said this beautiful thing about home will always partly be where your mother lives, which made me a bit teary. Uh, But could you just paint a little, could you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, so my mum is 
so she went she she went to school in 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 the UK, um, but she was born in Nigeria, and um, and then went to university in Nigeria, then kind of came back in um, in her early twenties, and um, it's interesting. She similar on that kind of home uh, theme. She uh, her her mother was not the first wife, so it was part of a polygamous household, and so again home in the context of many uh, of generations before mine was 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 not a, a traditional um construct um as as um we kind of generally understand it and then she left you know her home to come uh to the UK practically on her own and um you know she had my sister then she had me and she and she did it almost exclusively by herself um and she was someone that was raised in quite a middle-class Nigerian household. But what is a familiar story um, to many children of immigrants or immigrants themselves is that when you come to often a Western society, you know, Britain, uh, you you often start at the bottom of society. You know, you 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 have to work your way up and and um, and are faced with a whole new set of challenges, whether that's um, immigration status, um, certain values and ideals, um, and and this was something that she, you know, had to negotiate very much by herself. Um, and unlike many West African immigrants to the UK, what's quite unique about my mum is that she she's an atheist. She's not actually a, a kind of evangelical Christian or a Muslim, which is um, the overwhelming majority of, of um, Nigerian people are. So she she's someone that, uh, you know, raised two children on, on, on her own, you know, was an immigrant to the UK, but had very strong mm-hmm. um, uh, values from, from Nigeria and, 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 and thought for herself um, and, and didn't necessarily... Uh, believe some of the uh the the ideals and values in, in the society that she lived in so so that she, she's always been a very independent minded um very strong-willed and passionate woman do you mind me asking do you do you know had she inherited had she been brought up in a faith that she then rejected and if so not why or had she been brought up not religious yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting one with with Nigeria because uh, of late it has been associated with um, various religious conflicts, um, particularly in the north of Nigeria uh, around uh, radical Islam. But actually, uh, Christians and Muslims have lived very well together um, in Nigeria for for several uh, decades and if not hundreds of years. And my the family on my mother's side, um, many some of them were were Muslim, some of them were Christian, um, and and it, it was all a kind of a bit of a mix of faiths, to be honest. So she was broadly raised as a as a Christian, but there were influences of other uh, religious uh, practices and ideas mixed in there as well, and so it, it was always quite loose, um, but. She ultimately came to reject it, um, you know, when I was younger. Do you remember it? Um, I I do remember it. Um, so it was 
the household that I grew up in was British Nigerian. So as I was raised also in Kent, that it was a majority uh, white British kind of environment in schools and so on. But um, many of the the friends um, that my my mother had made were people that had a similar story to her, which were uh, immigrants from from Nigeria. So the majority of them were were, were evangelical evangelical Christians. And I think the reason that she rejected it, there was a small, there was a small point uh, when I was younger where she really did um, try and adopt um, all of the uh, the attitudes, the beliefs um, that are associated with kind of Pentecostal Christians. Um, but this was at a particular time in her life where um, she was going through economic um, challenges and issues around um, migration status that she she ultimately felt that um, that what she was doing um, that, that it wasn't working mm-hmm. that that she was yeah that it that the prayer and the the um, the all of the things you know going to church and you know giving tithe um and and the people around what were not um actually improving her her life um and so she 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 left because she felt that that it wasn't giving the the um the things that she felt that it promised and were there other big ideas around in your childhood? Was there a kind of political sensibility either from her or that you developed early? Mm. Yeah, so uh, I think a conservatism has always run through um, my family. And uh, and it is very interesting, you know, when we hear in political and social discourse, uh, a particular attitude that, um, you know, the ethnic minority people are are only really uh, from one particular political camp. But conservatism as a philosophy um, was very strong in, in, in my family and my upbringing. And it wasn't a kind of systematic kind of political philosophy, you know, in, in terms of reading the thinkers and so on, but it, it was just a kind of general orientation, a general outlook. And that and that sense of personal responsibility, that's one. And I think that that is true for a lot of immigrant um, families, not least because it takes a lot of get up and go and, and personal responsibility to, to leave the community and family that you... Um, are raised in that you've only known to start out a life in another country and, and and try and do everything you can to to give your children the best opportunities there's there's something about that that um, sense of hard working go getting um immigrant optimism as a uh, uh, as uh, tony soul uh, describes it so that that kind of sense of personal responsibility hard work um you know a, a very strong focus um, a very strong sense of discipline, mm-hmm. um, a, a strong educational ethos, and 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 general traditional values, um, you know, responsibility, family, uh, duty, um, mutual obligation. Um, these things that have 
I think, increasingly been um, disregarded or marginalised as values that are no longer uh, fashionable or or representative of a modern cosmopolitan woman mm. or mos- modern cosmopolitan person um, are, are things that were were a given, are a given to me and can, yeah, continue to be. And that, I think, was very influential for the, the Nigerian aspect of my, my upbringing, um, the, the kind of strong figures um, in my life, like my mother and, and my grandmother um, and my, my aunties and uncles. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would say a kind of general conservative outlook mm. um, has, has always been an undercurrent of, of my thinking and, and broader positioning. What were you, let's take a little snapshot. Imagine yourself now, age 13. I'd love to just get a sense of what you were like. What three words might your friends have used to describe you age 13? Oh God, that's, that's tough. Um, I think passionate. You know, I, I, I was very surprised. I mean, this is a bit younger, but I, I was very surprised to see um, a video of me when um, I think it was my fifth birthday and I had lots of um, of my school friends from primary school round and um, there was a we, that we were all doing karaoke and I was very surprised to find that on many occasions um, I attempted to to take the mic off of other people when it was their turn <laughs> and said it's and, you know I want to speak <laughs> and I was I, I couldn't believe it I was like wow this I have not changed for for 20 years um <laughs> so I think one of the words well, is is always I've always been very passionate um and you know very <laughs> strong-minded open and curious but also you know, had a sense of conviction and um, and was unafraid to to express myself. So that's one. Um, I think curious as well. And a very strange thing for someone you know, in their pre-teens. I, always, I grew up on a program called The Big Questions and it, it, I was very sad when they um, stopped the, the show. It was a Sunday um, religious and ethics and politics show. Uh, on on the BBC, and I would wake up every Sunday to watch these uh, these shows about you know religion and ideas and these big debates. And I've I've always been so curious about the way that different people think, and that's one of the reasons why I studied um, Arabic and politics. Um, and I've always studied languages um, since I was very young. So a curiosity about the world. Um, not least, I went to a state school, I went to a private school, I went to a grammar school, I went to different schools. And so I've, I was always very interested in how different social values and, and attitudes uh, create different conditions for different types of people. So passionate, curious. Have you always been, you, you, you're, you're someone who feels really, comes across as very comfortable with debate. Have you always find that kind of argumentation energizing rather than threatening, which some people do? Oh, I oh I find it so exciting, so interesting that you know that that we all. I mean, it, it's a truism, but the fact that we all 
have our own mind and think differently and and all of our experiences inform our perspective and and how we negotiate those differences in a society that kind of prides itself on being liberal and open. And so to me, debate has always been intrinsic to negotiating uh, differences and kind of building um, some kind of consensus, not not least because the alternative has is kind of imposition. And when we uh, when we do that, that obviously has its its other unintended consequences. But but on top of that, you know, living in a society like Britain, who has such a rich and and fascinating past and has positioned itself historically um, and continues to do in many ways as this kind of beacon of of uh, particular ideals and, and and trying to shape the world and, and move the world forward. Um, it has had to engage with and draw upon cultures and religious attitudes and values from across the world. And that's always that and and, and being able to to pull onto that and, and bring that together and 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 inform a much more interesting and and, and deeper and culturally culturally exciting society to, to me is just j- just seems so so obvious that that's what we should do um and so so to debate I've always found it very exhilarating and I've, I've never felt that there was any subject that whether that is race or or, or being a woman or whatever that might be that is that I've found is off limits yeah. and and on, on top of that you know even if in the mainstream that some people are are not wanting to debate something. It will be debated in, in, in some form or another. So I'd prefer it to be out in the open. Yeah. Uh, one last question kind of about your childhood, and I, and I want to ask it carefully, past, partly because I think it can get a bit boring for people of colour to be asked this, but it's important because of what we'll talk about shortly in terms of race and identity. How much was your identity as someone with Nigerian heritage important to you, central to your sense of self? And did it did it cause problems? Did you experience prejudice or racism as you were growing up? Mm. So it's really difficult. You know, these things are always difficult to think about and discuss when you get older. Because, and so I will answer your question more directly, but I think understanding what goes on amongst what children um, who are influenced by so many different things, understanding that as racism, um, to me, is a very difficult. It's kind of difficult to understand those things as racism, um, because to me, you know, I understand racism as as um, when it's it's dis- discrimination and prejudice against uh, people of of. of real or perceived different races, but not just that, on top of that, when that's that's given kind of moral and cultural authority by institutions. So we people can say something or be prejudiced or, or what have you, that we all have the capacity to do that. But to me, you know, racism as you know, as 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 something that kind of organizes society is much more about power and institutions. And so to think about when people ask me about whether or not I've experienced racism as a child um, I think it's very difficult to to think of um, childhood experiences in in in, in that way because I think it's a very adult political question 
But did I experience um, people picking on me because they of of my skin colour? Um, yes. Uh, was it something that was an everyday occurrence? Um, did it? No, that that it wasn't. Um, was it something that affected me on a on a pers- a deep personal level? The answer the the answer is no. Um, and in all honesty. I haven't experienced any direct in-person prejudice for pretty much for like five, six, seven years. I can count on on both hands, you know, just about how how many direct uh, racist statements have been made to me about me. Uh, So in that sense, I, I, I don't, it wasn't something that, was a very big experience or or a big part of me growing up, mm-hmm. um, and I'm 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 very grateful for that. I'm I, I count that lucky because other people say other say things quite different to me in that respect. Um, but I it it wasn't something that was a big feature of my childhood. No, mm. and you've spoken a little bit about being at university and a kind of growing sense of your political philosophy emerging and finding that often at odds with other students of colour and the way they were thinking about their own identity and their emerging Mm. political philosophy. Could you just say a bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, as I've I've said that just from from very young, you know, I've been very curious about ideas. I've been very curious about debating and and discussing all of the big issues that um, shape society um, politically and socially. And you know, I was very excited to go to university and and to um, do that in a much more academically and intellectually rigorous way. I mean, that's what I understood was the purpose of university to train the next generation of leaders to think critically and to think out loud about issues um, that they will go on to have responsibility for um, in the, their respective fields and, and contribute new knowledge and new, new new ideas to particular subjects. And I went to, I started university, I think, pretty much at the, the height of the, I think it was the kind of 2014 to 2020, the peak of the campus free speech culture wars. Um, you know, just the year after my first year of university, we voted for Brexit. Um, we had Trump. Um, so it was it was a, a very tumultuous time politically. And actually... Whilst I had a great time at university, I learned some amazing things and you know, it, it, it defined me in many ways. Um, what I was very sad about was the fact that when it, come to, when it came to many of these big debates in society around, around populism, around uh, race and identity, um, there was one view that was promoted. There was one view that was legitimised as morally right and good. And that was not up for debate. And actually there was a... There was a movement um, that was endorsed by my student union at the time called Why Is My Curriculum White? And as a you know, curious, open uh, young person who wants to um, hear about the kinds of ideas that are being championed by your university, I, I was very open to, to being convinced, of course. And, you know, attending many of those events, um, I would argue it promoted a, a very narrow 
one-sided view of of um British society and its relationship with its kind of former former colonial countries. So I often talk about a particular example of an event that I went to on de- so-called decolonizing gender. And it essentially argued that there was no uh, uh, sex difference or, or recognized gender difference um, in, in pre-colonial Africa. And, um, and that actually it was, it was a, a kind of Western imperialist um, endeavor in order to organize uh, people in particular societies around labor and reproduction. And to me, this was seem, seemed purely conjecture. And what's not, one of the evidence that was presented um, was the fact that in the Yoruba language, that many terms are not gendered. So as you have with a, you know, Spanish or French, there's a feminine and a masculine way of uh, saying things. But the, for Yoruba, there, there isn't apparently the same thing. And <laughs> that, that's a huge statement to make um, about pre-colonial uh, social organization based off of that. And it, it became increasingly clear to me that that um, that people were working backwards from a very a preconceived idea that um, that Western society was was intrinsically uh, racist, misogynistic, and um, dominating. And, um, and that non-Western societies are essentially primarily kind of children and victims of, um, and, and lack agency and are, are solely just the subject of this um, all-encompassing, dominating white Western force. And that was not um, the experiences that, that from my, my family. Um, and it was one that I think robbed African people of their own perspectives, their own stories, their own relationships, their own histories of, of triumph, but also domination also. And so it was really, um, it was really through many of these experiences around um, undermining freedom of expression and free speech and and uh, decolonizing the curriculum and issues related to that that really made me uh, develop a much more intellectually um rooted view of human agency about human freedom and uh and universalistic politics it must have been this is pure conjecture so feel free to push back but it must have been i imagine it was emotionally quite fraught as a person of color Mm -hmm. to be coming to different conclusions than the kind of dominant intellectual temperature of the time did you lose friends did it feel difficult at times oh you know I lost many friends and you know it 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 was very interesting you know it it was such a strange it was such a strange experience you know another example that I, I refer to often is um I was editing a section of the student newspaper and I wanted to commission an article on um, decolonizing the curriculum. Why is my curriculum why? I mean, you know, as a student, this is a particular movement that is shaping uh, campus discussions. Surely we should want to ensure that we represent a range of different views. And when I tried to do that, I had a flood of emails um, from 
a, a minority of students because uh, this is not I don't I don't think this is representative of most students I don't think most students care to be honest but um, that's a minority of students who accuse me of uh, platforming white supremacy and and things of that nature and you know it only emboldened me you know I I, I was I said you know I'm gonna host a free speech event on campus and the university were <laughs> they um try to push back. They wanted the speakers to have a code of conduct, um, signed form and all sorts of things. It ultimately did take place. Um, and, you know, it just happens that I'm somebody that doesn't like to be uh, censored. Um, but it, it, it is sad when you start to think differently in, in a way that actually alienates you from people that you would have thought were the kinds of people that would be your great friends. And, you know, I think it is sad because we do live in a time where thinking politically or socially different to other people is often a deal breaker in terms of friendships and relationships. And I don't think it has to be that way. You know, I think I, I love the stories of, you know, during Christmas, the aunties and uncles around and, you know, you're the uncle saying, you know, the most cringeworthy things and someone else is saying something else. But at the end of the day, you all love each other. You're all, you're all a family. You know, it, it's fine. But I think we, we, we've increasingly lost that um, that sense that behind someone's kind of political views is a genuine person that is worthy of dignity and respect. But not just that, that actually people come to their political views for a whole host of reasons and that they may know something or experience something that you haven't that has informed their perspective. And, you know, we, we need to understand that. We need to discuss that. We need to talk about that. And so it is sad to me that, you know, for a lot of young people, and what I found was that that was a deal breaker <laughs> in mm. terms of being a friend, my friend. But... But I don't think it should be that way at all. And I'd love you to spell out, and perhaps you can do it um, by talking about the Equiano Project, which is this um, organisation that you founded since graduating. Could you just summarise for kind of lay people like me what your position is on um, how we navigate differences like race in society and what, what is it that you see I'm not going to use the word problematic, challenging about some of the identitarian narratives. Okay, now there's there's a few things. So one of the things is the question of progress. And, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of thinkers that uh, have been writing critical things about the notion of progress. But I think um, in order to have a sensible discussion about racism in contemporary Britain, I think we have to have a much more realistic discussion about how far we've come. And I think we no longer, I think it should be obvious for many people that we no longer live in a society um, that is uh, supportive and and sanctioning of of slavery and and colonial uh, impositions. I think that's a very important thing to recognise, even though it's quite obvious. But let's even take history much more recent. Um, When I speak to um, people that I know of older generations that are now 60s, 70s and 80s, they talk about the fact that um, their parents were, you know, their parents would be horrified 
at the idea of them being with someone of a different ethnicity or or even living next to someone of a different ethnicity. They can talk about experiences of of um, having horrible things thrown through their windows and living under conditions of fear as recently as perhaps even the 80s. And we no longer, I think it's really important to recognise we no longer live in a society like that. Social attitude surveys in the UK have consistently demonstrated that racism in in the form of not being okay with your child dating someone of a different race or living next to someone of a different race is an is in long-term decline. And on top of that, that um, people no longer think that Britishness um, must mean that you're white. And in 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 50 years, if that, less than that, um, we have fundamentally transformed when it comes to our attitude about um, different racial groups. Um, so I think that is really important to in my view, to contextualise the discussion about whether or not we should be kind of optimistic or pessimistic about how we treat each other when it comes to um, our attitudes to race. But I think one thing about the discussion in society is it it seeks to downplay progress and often says that racism hasn't actually um, been in decline, that it's only transformed, that actually the problem now is more about unconscious bias or covert racism. And that's the real problem, this kind of... uh, psychological uh, prejudice that we don't even know ourselves. And I think that that's really harmful um, when there are huge material and lived experience as evidence that that, um, racism has got much better when it comes to the proportion of people's attitudes. Secondly, on on that same point, it's, it's deeply pessimistic. So this idea that society is structurally racist or institutionally racist, and it doesn't even matter if individuals within that particular organization or institution are racist themselves, but the society is has attitudes or, or cultures that are, are, are just intrinsically racist, I think is deeply pessimistic. Because I think that for most people in society, we are all negotiating with one another, you know, treating people as best that we can, being kind and and just trying to get on. And I think when you reimagine normal human relationships and the imperfections of society as, as being in, in, embedded in racism, I think that you kind of foster a sense of mutual distrust and resentment. And we see that in attitudes and around discussions about Uh, institutional racism in the police or healthcare, actually what often happens is that you then corrode people's trust in those institutions and therefore they're less likely to participate in them as citizens. So, for example, the way that um, ethnic minority people for a long time were were more likely to be, um, have levels of kind of vaccine scepticism, but also in um, the discussions around stop and search and policing, when you embed a particular narrative that our society is structured in a particular way against people by virtue of their race, then you foster a sense of suspicion and pessimism, which can actually disempower individuals from participating as equal citizens within society. Um, So to me, recognising progress is a really important issue. Actually being much more optimistic and more trusting about our fellow citizen and how far we've come. And then the third thing for me is that how it essentializes um, ethnic minority people. Now we see in these discussions all the time, whether that's 
conservative political figures or and others who perhaps have a, a conservative views about um, immigration or that but they happen to be ethnic minority people also or, or Brexit or these other issues that somehow their authenticity um, as an ethnic minority person is is delegitimized and questioned and it is to suggest that actually to be an ethnic minority person is only a very specific thing and to me that is essentially repackaging old ideas which argued that your racial identity said something about your moral and social characteristics and so I think that's a really dangerous slippery slope to go down um so those to me and there are many other things that I have a problem with uh, the, the hostility towards freedom of speech and discussion the way in which uh, we accept America's very particular issues around police brutality and 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 slavery as our own even though they're they're related they're definitely it's it's fundamentally different so those are some of the issues that I think the contemporary narrative deeply deeply gets wrong mm. and what I always like to kind of bring different points kind of at their strongest into conversation with each other and I'm kind of thinking through um what what do you think that movement gets right and i am thinking mm. in particular about wondering in particular about the kind of long tail of unjust structures because i know from reading your work that it's not that you don't think racism exists at all or that you think you know mm. slavery and colonialism were broadly what well, slavery very much bad thing colonialism many harms um but the, one of the things that's come out of the movement, I think, is how long it can take, both just within individuals whose ancestors experienced really significant trauma through kind of epigenetic transfer, that, that those experiences do change us over generations, but we're not quite sure how and, you know, question mark. But also in terms of mm. the way wealth is passed down, that... Is, is it possible that one of the things that this moment is doing is making more visible the long tail of some of those situations? And is it that you would kind of dispute all that or that you would say, yes, I can see that, but it's not, it's not actually helpful for people of colour to focus on it because you want to work out what's helpful and hopeful in this moment? Yeah, no, I think um, I think it's a bit of both. So I I, I would uh, I would challenge so many of the assumptions um, that or, or, of of the contemporary discussion about race and, and and racism. This kind of particularly this idea um, that it's really t like yes, twenty twenty, the Black Lives Matter protests were a defining moment, um, but not for the reasons I think is discussed. Oftentimes, it's it's you know framed as um, the almost the first time, not exactly, but oftentimes almost the first time that we've had a kind of racial awakening, which I think, you know, would surprise many of the people in the nine, the many people that I know who were at the forefront of um, anti-racist protests, you know, during the, the 80s. Um, there's actually been very long discussions that have happened about colonialism, um, about the way that we teach the British Empire. You know, I was taught about the British Empire in school and, and, and actually, history, for example, is, is not a compulsory uh, subject anyway. So whether kids are getting history lessons um, 
is up for debate, let alone talking specifically or learning specifically about the British Empire. So I, I think a lot of the discussions that are being had don't actually stack up to the reality about um, the kinds of conversations and the kinds of policies that have been implemented over the last few decades in order to improve racial equality. You know, the the Equality Act and various other anti-discrimination legislation um, have existed in this country for a very long time. Um, it, it, it is illegal to discriminate against somebody um, on the grounds of race. Actually, the history curriculum is... Uh, is very diverse. Um, you, know, you, you do learn um, about many of the, the rights and the wrongs of, of, of British history. And actually, even the history of, the, of, of um, ethnic minority people in Britain is, is very heterogeneous. So, so, so many of the, um, the, the immigrants that are black in the mid 20th century in the UK were of Caribbean heritage primarily. But now the majority of people that are black Britons are children of people that um, actually came from waves of immigration much later, um, West African immigrants in the 80s and 90s. And and so many of their their history is not necessarily tied to um, the transatlantic slave trade in in the same way that you might find for African-Americans or or, or Caribbean-Americans. And actually, for example, uh, Caribbean people, they're, they're more likely, um, Caribbean men, for example, are more likely to marry a white woman than they are a, a, a Caribbean woman. So actually, there's a lot of mixing and integration and relationships that are happening. And so the, the, the kind of picture that is broadly painted, um, I, I wouldn't actually say is, is, is accurate um, about, about the way that society is and, and the extent to which we have been uh, interested in discussions about racism, um, so so I so I don't I, I don't really think it is true, and I and I think actually, um, uh, well, well, a lot of the time when when these discussions are had about um, problems in Britain, it it I think that you know I I do worry, and I think it is a difficult argument to make. But I, I do think that there is a danger in in kind of cultivating um, a sense of um, a sense of a kind of black identity that um, is is placed in opposition to society and one that is is almost uh, hypersensitive to 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 racism or hypersensitive to slights and disagreements and perceiving them as as racism because the the truth of the matter is um, I don't think most people in society um, think about people that much. I don't think people um, think about other races in, in that way. So I would, I, I would question some of the assumptions as well as argue that um, it's not helpful to, to cultivating, you know, hope and, and um, citizenship and, and mutual understanding. It fascinated me to hear um, in another interview your kind of love of existentialist philosophers. And I don't know if that's still kind of live for you, but I'm always really interested in the kind of intellectual archaeology of people. And, you know, what what are our influences? Could you say a little bit more about what you're drawn to in Sartre and Camus and Nietzsche? What are the ideas that spark for you? Or if you've changed your mind, what happened? (laughs) Yeah, so um, I think it was 
a few years ago in particular, you know, I, go, going off of that same idea that I talked about earlier about kind of personal responsibility and, and human agency, and, and also the, the sense that one came from a broken home, I think I found a lot of uh, meaning and clarity in, in the idea that, that we are ultimately responsible um, for where we are in life and, and what we do. And actually we, and I think, and it relates very much actually to the discussion about race for me, that, that we overstate um, other constraining factors. Um, and, and because we, we're fearful oftentimes or are scared of the idea that we are actually free, um, that we can um, orient ourselves in the world and, and kind of create create our world. Um, and so to me, that that made a lot of sense to me at a very particular time in my life um, when I think that there was a lot of prevailing narratives about, you know, human fragility and human vulnerability um, and harm and the, the kind of uh, way in which particularly uh, perceived marginalised groups were were kind of uh, uh, did not have freedom, um, and I think it was. And you know, the Equiano project is named after Alauda Equiano, who's an 18th century writer and abolitionist. And to me, it, it was it, his story really drew me because even somebody that what experienced slavery, which really is one of the ultimate forms of subjection and and, and subjugation. Um, was able to uh, recognize his intrinsic dignity and humanity and challenge and transform his circumstances by buying his own freedom and actually using his voice in order to um, uh, argue against the the wicked practice um, of the slave trade. Now, of course, not everybody uh, can do those things and not every slave had the ability to do that, but... I was I was I was always drawn by people like him or, or Frederick Douglass, who, even despite every message within society saying to you that that you are effectively nothing, that you are worthless, you're no more than a slave, to be able to believe in freedom and freedom of speech as he did, to me says something remarkably profound about human consciousness or the human, um, and therefore existentialism, which along those same lines, uh, talks about uh, the fact human responsibility and our our human freedom um, was was very, um, resonated with me very strongly at that time. And and so, I mean, now I don't read as much existentialist work um, as I did several years ago. Um, Most people don't after they graduate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's probably true so I, I don't read as much now but um if at all but at that time it, it, it was very meaningful to me um and and I don't know if it's just getting older um I don't know but I'm, I'm I am increasingly what whilst freedom and freedom of speech and all of those things were a big motivating factor for my political um activism I'm, I am increasingly interested in, in the things that constrain freedom, like morality, 
and it's something I'm still working through. I'm still thinking about. And actually, I've I've not been as uh, vocal in in um, public life in recent months because I'm I'm thinking through a lot of ideas. Um, but but this um, but questions around sexual morality, um, questions about are, are there things that are more important than freedom, such as yeah, more, such as relationships of, of mutual obligation, such as such as duty, such as honor, such as um, family values, um, and I don't, I, I don't think I've, I haven't come to a definitive conclusion, um, but I think that there is a danger of creating a society where freedom effectively becomes license, um, where where it becomes a kind of shallow. Uh, self creating you know your own moral values that that is detached from society and detached from social relations and and a kind of hollow self actualization that is without roots um and i think that there's a lot of issues in um our society you know around gender um around the questions that we've just discussed and I think a lot of people say, well, you know, is my freedom to do so? And I think, yes, perhaps it is your freedom, but but is that is that right? Is that good? And how, how do we talk about, and can we even talk about in a kind of secular, uh, liberal, modern society, a, a notion of, of what is good? And how, and how do we transmit a notion of the good collectively? rather than it just being everybody inventing their own idea of the good. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at, and I'm still working through that. But I'm increasingly interested in the relationship between freedom and and, and actually what's good and what is right. Mm. It sounds like you are um, feeling the pull of post-liberalism. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> And I think Anna, Anna, there's dignity and honour in it, right? Starting with freedom mm. Mm. as a sacred value, you know, as a as a really fundamental baseline for things. And then mm. as we come to see that kind of free individuals are a bit of a fiction and we are mm. irreconcilably interdependent and... Mm. Mm. we do owe things to each other kind of mm. that nuancing of freedom as the kind of ultimate end is a yeah it's a good and important and, yeah no I, I I agree and I think and and maybe that 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 is just you know in your youth and in a way you know I love the idea of of young people you know experimenting and exploring and 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 feeling and, and pursuing you know a sense of freedom and, and maybe it is just that 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 natural arc that actually you know as you gain responsibility as you gain a stake within um society you know as you learn some lessons the, the hard way um that that you start to you start to question that and you start to want to mitigate against the sharp end of things and 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 you want to protect the things that you that you value that you've created 
and so so yeah I'm, I'm not I'm not too worried about the the arc but maybe I am slowly going on that direction <laughs> maybe I can talk to you again in five years Inaya Falara and Iman thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred thank you So, Naya, I wonder if you had the same reaction to me uh, when you heard her biography. Um, Brexit party spiked GB News. If you're outside the UK, um, you might not know that particularly GB News and Spiked are media outlets that are seen as being uh, are quite new. Spiked has gone back a while, actually, but are... Um, GB News was explicitly set up to provide a kind of Fox News for the UK. And Spiked News, it's hard to sort of peg it politically, really, but it, it's sort of self-consciously controversial. Very much, you know, whatever it seems like the consensus is, Spiked will commission a piece with someone arguing the exact opposite. And so these things on Anaya's CV made me expect someone much, much, just much more, much scrappier, you know, much more... Um, much more of a culture warrior, really, uh, than the woman that I met. Um, I was expecting someone much more adversarial, um, maybe less nuanced um, than came across. And uh, this project repeatedly forces me to... uh, notice and then um, move past my prejudices because, as you will have heard, Anaya um, is, as we all are, just uh, much more three-dimensional than um, any box we could put anybody in. And so uh, her sacred value was home. You know, she had this um, beautiful sense of wanting to put down roots, of having moved a lot as a child and then being drawn to put down roots. And so central in her story is this figure of her mum, this, uh, what she calls a kind of, you know, self-confident woman who brought up children on her own, who left her faith community when it felt like it wasn't a fit for her anymore. Um, And you can really hear that kind of powerful... Um, self-confidence, I guess, and self-belief passed down to the daughter. It's always a lovely thing when you can hear the roots of the parenting that's created someone. And then I also talked about something that's come up with other people about uh, a kind of working class conservatism. And people from immigrant communities often complicate the narrative of who sits on the left and who sits on the right and... um, Uh, what people of colour can be uh, expected uh, to believe or align politically. I think uh, it's never been as simple as it's sometimes made out to be, and it certainly uh, will only get more complex. But yeah, this sense of personal responsibility, duty, moral obligation um, to make good use of your life, um, it came came through with Catherine Burble's sing as well, although she's moved to that position. Um, I love this picture of Anaya watching the big questions uh, on television as a sort of beautifully nerdy teenager desperate to get involved in the, in, in the big questions, in these ideas of how do we live together, what is a good life, what should politics um, look like. And uh, I really felt the, 
you know, she talks about it very calmly, but maybe I was imagining or projecting how difficult it must be to be at university and be coming to different conclusions to your peers um, about how to navigate questions of race, about how to act or speak as a black woman. And often when we're thinking about divides and tribes, this thing comes up again that it's sometimes when you move tribes or you you reveal yourself to be to to hold a position or not be part of a tribe that people expect you to be in or hold a view that people expect you to hold, how diff- difficult that can be relationally. Paul Kingsnall talked about it with vaccines. It's come up around race. It's come up around a lot of things, actually. Um, changing your views on sexuality, you know, changing your religion. And it... <sighs> It's this sort of sad thing, isn't it, that we should be able to be in deep relationships of loving friendship with people who really, really disagree on things with us. But in practice, that can really press on something quite deep. And we know that if we don't, if we aren't intentional about it, our friendship groups can end up being all people like us, <laughs> socioeconomically, politically, religiously. It speaks to this thing that I, I think about a lot, about a sort of unstable self, a self that is always looking out to the world and to those around us to say, who am I? And when someone around us changes, we can feel very um, destabilised. And it is really a, a challenge to me and a call to me to let my friends change tribes, <laughs> to let my friends change political beliefs, to let them hold beliefs or values that are... Um, directly opposite to what I do and and still love them because that should be possible. And it is the only way I think we stay open to the world, open-hearted, open-minded, open-minded in any real way. Um, It's really interesting listening to her perspective on where we are with the race conversation and this sense that comes through of wanting to have a both and, I think that's what I'm hearing from her. To both be able to say, you know, yes, people of colour still have many more hurdles to clear than white people. There is still racism to navigate and there are far fewer hurdles and far less racism to navigate than there used to be. To kind of be able to celebrate where we've come from and not, and, and, and in that, to maintain a sense of optimism, I think, I, I, I hear from her a sense of progress, a sense that actually we can live together better with our differences. We can, um, we can move forward, we can build trust, and that something about the way we're talking about it at the moment is making that more difficult. And I really heard from her this, this sense that it might just be temperamental of... Um, wanting a sense of agency herself. And she used this phrase, coming from a broken home, which I ha- haven't heard anyone use in a while, really, and, and particularly not someone, you know, use it about themselves, but it relates to her, you know, love of existentialism, this sense of agency building. You know, I don't want to tell a story about myself that I'm crushed under the system of, um, you know, of of a racist society. I want to have agency. I want to be able to make my own way in the world. And connected to that, we didn't get into it in depth, but is this a sense of universalism, the sense of um, wanting to focus on what we have in common rather than the ways that are different. It was 
um, really thought-provoking, and I'm going to be sitting with it, sitting with it for a while. And then we landed at the end, and it, it, it's always really. I love getting to talk to people at all different life stages. You know, in their twenties, like Anaya, and in their sixties and seventies, and the journey that they've go, gone on, and the way we change, we change over time. You know, we think something strongly, we believe something strongly, and. Um, the freedom to change our minds, to feel our way, to lift and listen to different people seems really important to me. And you can just hear her doing that. You know, freedom has been such a strong value to her. And now she's beginning to be interested in, you know, what might limit freedom, uh, what might a kind of um, uh, morality, in, in her words, wh where should that be allowed to limit it? And I really genuinely am interested in where Anaya's thought goes next. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and our production team are Lizzie Harvey, Dan Turner, and we are edited by Drew Hawley. Our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals from Lizzie Harvey and we are a project of the Think Tank Theos. As always, please, please, please uh, think about leaving us a rating. It takes one click or a review. It takes a few more clicks, but I will read them and rejoice. Even I think if they're challenging, because I want to hear what you think. Um, maybe send an episode to a friend, talk about us on social media. The podcast is currently free and uh, has no advertising and we would really value your support in this way. Until next time.